Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 428 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interview Jamie Boylan of Big Blue Bubble Games and ask him about the design and development of the deck-building roguelike heavy metal-themed action-adventure. Power Chord. Yes, there's a lot to Power Chord. And boy, does Jamie really talk a great length about the intricacies of the design of this game, which is why we have him on and why you're here to listen, I hope. Power Chord is a very unique game. It is a deck builder, I grant you, but it has only four avatars, or four characters, I should say, of a band, from the bassist, the drummer, and guitarist, and, and the singer, and they all have their roles to play. And the cards kind of feed into this theme, and uh, you're attacking other creatures and demons, what have you, uh, in this strange sort of like alternate reality. It's still very exciting and uh, looks a bit like Mad World, which is an old Wii game from the uh, late 2000s, I think 2008, 2006, something like that. Anyway, let's listen to me from the relatively recent past talk to Jamie about Power Court. Hello, Jamie. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? I'm well. Well, thanks for joining us. Who are you, sir? And what do you do? <sighs> All right. Uh, well, my name's Jamie Boylan, and I am the art director at Big Blue Bubble, and I'm also sort of the acting producer on Power Chord, which I think is what we're here for. We are indeed. We are indeed now. Big Blue Bubble has been on before, they, uh, back in episode 282, and talking about Foregone, which is one of my favorite roguelike sort of adventure, Castlevania sort of like Metroidvania games. Wonderful. Beautiful game. Great. Encountered at PAX West, I think it was, or East. One of the PAXs. I get confused. Could have been either. They blur. So, Jamie, how did you make a start making flashy, lighty video games? Um, well, I actually got started with Big Blue Bubble back just coming up on about 13 years ago now. Um, I started as a, an artist with the studio straight out of school. And uh, I got my start on games for Facebook. That was the first thing I ended up doing was getting dropped into a home decorating game aimed at 40-year-old women played on Facebook. 
that was my introduction to games. Uh, from there, we kind of rode uh, the sort of introductory times for sort of mobile games exploding. Uh, and yeah, that was kind of where it began, was coming through Big Blue Bubble, working on Facebook games first, then getting into mobile games, some PC stuff. Um, we put out a lot of mobile games during that time. I think I've worked on 35 games at this point in some fashion, just because of getting through so many of them at that point. It's really slowed down over the last couple of years as those games start taking longer and longer. Um, eventually, I ended up working my way up to lead on sort of the flagship title for the studio, which is My Singing Monsters, which is sort of been a, a huge success for the studio and it's really carried us over the last 10 years now. Um, and the great thing about My Singing Monsters exploding for the studio is that it opened it up for us to take on projects that we've really wanted to, but maybe would have been a little more risky at the time. Games like Forgone, that probably didn't exist for Big Blue Bubble without My Singing Monsters really taking off and supporting us. Power Chord is another one of those. Uh, Power Chord being a, a roguelike deck builder, it's already a little bit niche on its own there. And then to put the skin that we did on top of it, the sort of rock demon monster skin, again, we're going niche within niche there. And these sorts of things really, they exist because My Singing Monsters was able to do that for us and give us that flexibility to take some risks with some of these games. So I was lead on monsters for a short time there. Um, before uh, doing some teaching and starting an art director role actually at a different studio before finally returning to Big Blue Bubble again uh, as a producer and then art director. It's been a odd circle to get back around to uh, where I am now. Um, but all of those things had to happen for Power Chord to ever end up existing. Uh, and yeah, it's sort of the uh jumping around while trying to describe the last 13 years in uh two minutes interesting point you raised about how mobile phone games are taking longer to make i think it might be mm -hmm. something to do with the power of those those little those phones that are incredible now absolutely when we started doing mobile games uh that was like the 3ds hadn't released yet and you were pretty limited to what you can do there, but also players were pretty limited to what they expected from you. Um, if you had a game that cost 99 cents and it kept them busy for an hour or it kept their kid quiet on a drive, they were happy. Uh, that's not enough for anybody anymore. So even those mobile games, they're now similar production levels to anything you're gonna see coming out on the Switch. Uh, sometimes the the phones are more powerful than the Switch even. Um, and just the production levels keep going up. So yeah, it was interesting to see. I think I worked on 20 games my first five years and three games after that. Uh, it just sort of works out that way. So the next question is this. This is asking you, you can answer this as you personally or uh, as, for, as a basis from the behalf of the studio itself. But what do you believe are your biggest influences as a creator? Um, I think that just for me personally, the biggest influences are going to be some of the games that I 
I played as a kid that I thought were important. So like Tony Hawk Pro Skater 1 was a surprisingly important game for me. Uh, GoldenEye was a big one. And then eventually uh, like Team Fortress 2 was also a huge one for me. Because uh, there was a big gap in there where I didn't play a lot of games from late college or sorry, late high school into into college, and Team Fortress Two kind of brought me back into everything. And it was at the time that it released, it was in this sea of Call of Duties and SOCOMs, and then you get this big, over-the-top, cartoonish, colorful, loud, uh, loud shooter. And it wasn't just how different the game was from everything else that was out there at the time, but it was also the way that Valve sort of handled the game, how they how they worked with their their audience. And uh, I can remember every single time, any any time they posted any sort of update news or story lore on the website, you'd have to tab through the page to find all the hidden links that they had in there because it was always full of little secrets and. This is early on. They were playing a lot of games with their audience for things, and then uh, they were also one of the f- like one of the first big games to just decide, forget it, we're going free to play. Uh, everybody has access to the game now, and I thought that was a really interesting one too. I mean, I I had it on on disc from the Orange Box, but just to see like they had this massive game. It was successful for years. And then they just flipped a switch and said, you know what, let's completely change the entire plan for this game, uh, turn it free to play and see how many more years we can keep it going for. But just the way they handled Team Fortress in general and the way that they kind of, instead of following along with what all the big games were at the time, they they took the what do we want to do with this. Um, and you can really see the individual artists at work in there. You can really see their influences. So as far as games are concerned, like Team Fortress is, I guess, probably one of the bigger influences for me. Uh, beyond that, it's going to be things like comic books and cartoons, like whatever you can drag in that is yours specifically. Um, I think that always, whatever you can do to make a game that only you could have made, that nobody else would have made those choices. Um, I think that's a really important thing for whatever you're doing with with uh, with your work and kind of whatever you're trying to bring to it. Next question: What video game developer do you most admire and why? Oh, that's tough. Um, again, I think when Valve made games, they were my favorite developer. Um, it's it's a big win. It's been a while, but not just Team Fortress, but I played a lot of Counter-Strike Source. Uh, I played a lot of Left 4 Dead. And they always seemed to uh, really push not just the quality of what they were doing, but it was never, it was, it was like a, a, an entire package that they had to things. And they didn't seem to take themselves overly seriously a lot of the time. Left 4 Dead was still, I'd say, almost half comedy. Um, Portal 2 is one of my favorite games to play through still, uh, just because of all of the fantastic voice work they put into it. Um, I like that they, aside from their open-ended shooters like Counter-Strike or Team Fortress, I like that they tended to keep a lot of their stuff uh, smaller if necessary in order to keep the quality high. Uh, that 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 bar that they needed to meet was always 
uh, always really ambitious. And they did manage to keep that quality all the way through a lot of these games. So Valve was probably my favorite one for a long time. Um, beyond that, what I like to see right now, I don't think I have any specific favorite developers at the moment, but more so I'm just trying to follow anybody who's trying to do something different. Uh, I think I started to get old and jaded at some point recently. And so what I really want to see is who's doing something that I didn't expect or what sort of surprises do you have in there? I, I'm at the point where I don't want to see the same game done well. I'd rather see something new, even if it's a bit janky, as long as you tried something different, uh, be it art or gameplay or whatever it happens to be. But right now, the ones I appreciate the most are the ones who are taking risks and trying to do something different and just trying to surprise you with something that you you don't already have access to. A laudable quest, and I wish you the very best <laughs> of luck. That. Yeah, sometimes it works. Indeed, indeed. So, last question for the first half. What are you playing right now? At the moment, um, I'm still playing Overwatch 2. I don't think I even want to, but it's so great at being able to jump in for 10 minutes at a time, play a match, jump back out. I don't have to learn anything. I don't have to think. And so it's it's been a really uh, good game for me to have with uh, just power cord going on and to be able to then go home. And it's not a game that's going to... well. It will challenge you because of the other players, but at least I don't have to worry about a huge commitment to it. Uh, so that's the one that I'm playing at the moment. Uh, I just got through Lost in Random not too long ago, and that one was fantastic. I really, really liked the presentation that they had for everything in there. Thought that their their mechanics of uh, sort of drawing the cards mid battle, uh, I thought that was really fun, uh, and I thought that was just a fantastic game. Um, do I have anything else on the on the go? Um, I think those are the main things right now that I've I've been going through. Some guests um, um, sort of suggest what they plan to play after they've finished their game that they've made, and they've got oh god, I've got some time free, just a smidgen. And what am I going to delve into? Anything in that, yeah. in that regard? Um. I mean, I've definitely built up a lot of games over the last few Steam sales that I have not installed yet. Um, I think now I can picture it and I can't even remember the name. Um, you can describe think, it first, uh, we can play a little game of what it is. Oh, that's, that's the worst part. It's a Double Fines game that came out not too long ago, the sequel. Somebody help me out here. Didn't it start with a B? Thank you. I kept mixing it. I kept mixing it up with a comic that I've got sitting on the shelf behind me, which is called Perhapanots. Ah. I was like, it's just I know the part of the word is wrong. So I did pick that up in the last Steam sale, and I'm looking forward to taking a look at it. Um, I also picked up Back for Blood because it looks like they they got it to the point where you can play it alone, um, and so I'm looking forward to that as well. But what I'll probably end up doing as soon as this is done is mindlessly playing whatever I already know at the moment. 
again for a little bit. Because uh, I know me and I know that that's going to be my habit probably. <laughs> that's interesting. So here we have here end of the first half. Let's uh, chassay over to the second half. If we can do that, wave our hands around, maybe a little bit, sort of maybe do some air guitar. That might be much worse, way better. And right. move on to the second half of the show where we delve deep into power chords. Could tell us before we delve into it, can you tell us what is Power Chord? All right, so Power Chord is a roguelike deck builder. Uh, and in this game, what kind of sets us apart is that you are, I usually think of it sort of like battle bards. You have got a band of musicians, each with their own set of sort of uh, mystic abilities, and you're battling off hordes of demons that are attacking your world. Uh, so in Power Chord, what sets it apart from other roguelike deck builders is that you are building up a band of uh, characters as opposed to just a single one. And each of those characters has got their own deck of cards and their own special abilities. So really what you're doing is building four decks that get shuffled together, and then you're trying to use the entire group in order to build out these attacks that you're going to be using. So it's not about making anyone strong, it's about everybody sort of contributing to the entire attack that you're going for. Uh, how we've got it set up is that in your team, you've kind of got classes for the, the different instruments. So your drummer, he's basically a tank. Uh, all the drummers are based around defending the rest of your team and keeping you alive. Your singers, they're the support class, so you're more likely to get somebody who is healing 
or applying a lot of buffs to the team, but that's where a lot of your power is gonna be. Uh, a lot of your support sort of abilities are coming from your singers, your guitarist, they're based around doing as much damage as possible to a single target on the enemy team. They're really kind of soloists if they need to be, and they're based around just doing all sorts of damage. And then finally, you've got your bassists, and they are kind of split between two different kinds of archetypes. In one way, they're about any sort of AOE damage, raining down as much as you can over the entire enemy team. And they're also about a lot of debuffs. So the bases are going to be applying more debuffs to the enemy team to either weaken them, poison them, kill them off faster, that sort of thing. So it's really about how you take all four of these characters and then throughout that deck building experience, it's really kind of adapting to what the game offers to you. Often you'll go in and say, you know, this is my favorite character. They're who I'm going to power up. But this other one's getting all sorts of great cards in the in the rewards. So this time you're going to be the star of this and you're going to be the one doing all the damage or you're going to be the one who's really my focus on on powering up. So it's it's really about how those characters fit together. And then we do have multiple characters for each of those slots. So you're able to mix up the team as well as you're, as you're playing through different runs. So you may decide that this time you're taking out the singer that's more of a healer, the other singer that we've got. So we've got Stitch who is more of a healer. And then we have got Asher who is more about deck manipulation. So your first singer, they can heal your team, keep you alive longer if you're taking damage. The second one, He's going to be about trying to change the cards that are in your hand right now, draw more cards, get rid of these ones, bring this specific one in. I need a card for that guy. He's the one who's going to do that for you. So you can really go in and mix and match all the characters that you've got to try and find whatever group it is that really works for you. Um, we tried to take a almost a, a Street Fighter influence to it where we wanted everybody to be able to find their character that they like. So we wanted as much variety to them as, as we could get, and no two of them should feel the same. Really, if you take this one and swap it out, you should have a completely different run, even if you're only swapping out one character at a time. Uh, and these really are the, the focus of Power Chord, is what can you do with these four characters that you've chosen to take in out this time. The first design question I have is as follows. Um... There's a link between the band members, as you've spoken in great detail about. <clears throat> and interestingly enough, taking damage can actually enhance the damage output of certainly the lead guitarist. Right. Why? <laughs> it seems well, extremely counterintuitive. Well, uh, a big thing that we found when working on this game is that having those additional characters, so a lot of your battles end up being four of your characters versus four enemy characters. And when you've got that many targets on either side, defense became a really interesting thing. So you've got a character where if you defend them, they're not as strong. Normally that would seem a, a bit weird to have those two characters side by side. However, you have three other characters who might need your defense. So what you'll probably end up doing with that character is um, he can still gain that power when taking damage, even if he has armor, 
but you may know that I can let him take a hit because somebody else needs to be defended this time. Or if anybody's going to get hit, I hope it's him. And then you focus on, instead of blocking the hits from that guitarist, you focus on healing him after they happen. So you start shifting around uh, what your priorities are based on the, the special abilities of those characters. This guy's really good at receiving damage. Let him have it. Just make sure that you, you strengthen him back up afterwards for the next fight. But um, sometimes it's in even having those characters where they seem counterintuitive off the start to match them together. Sometimes those make for really interesting runs when you can get something going between them. Uh, and we also, like I said, we, we wanted to really push our characters as far apart as we could so that they, they'd all feel different. And that does mean that sometimes, sometimes there are combinations that are better than others. Uh, but I also feel like once you get into the, the roguelike category, sometimes people like to add in that additional challenge for themselves of these two characters are, are tough to work together, but I want to see how I can do that. A big part of Power Chord for us is not over-managing what we expect you to do. We really want to just give you options and I'm happy if you can surprise us. One of my favorite things that happened through through working on this game was whenever we had people play testing, they would always be sending us screenshots of like, look at this ridiculous thing I'm about to do. I've got way too much power. I'm about to do 80 damage in a single hit. I really, really enjoyed all the times that people would send us a screenshot because they thought they broke the game. That's fantastic. I'm glad you're having fun. The thing you did is hard to do, you can't do it every time, so go ahead. Enjoy what you think is a broken action right now. You're you're definitely overpowered. Congratulations, you're doing it. Uh, that was absolutely one of my favorite things was that people would find they would find ways to use those combinations that I know I never would have thought of. Uh, but that's really that's on the strength of the sort of card design from from our lead designer on this. Uh, she was much more adept than me at finding those interesting combinations of things. I'm much more of a add two power. Well, that's two plus damage. Great. Uh, and then they would tell, like the designer would tell me, well, if you had done this and this and this, you actually would have done like nine times as much damage. Like, oh, really? Okay. Well, I guess I need to work harder at this then. Um, but she's built out a really interesting system for all the cards. And there's been a heavy focus on making sure that those characters do work together, that there aren't actually that many moments where one character can completely counteract one of your teammates, uh, even though sometimes it'll look like it at the start. Speaking of the cards, my next question is related to their design themselves. I've used the phrase, the designing of the anatomy of the cards, which maybe some non-board game players don't know what that means. It's basically the layout and the structure and how you are communicating to the player what, you know, what they can do. Can you talk us through how, you, how they developed? Because they are extraordinary. They went through several versions. Um, so early on, we had a lot more targeting information on the card. 
um, where we were showing you here's images to represent the enemy band and your band, and here's good cards versus random cards versus uh, buffs, debuffs. And what we ended up with was all this noise that even though it made sense once you learned it and everybody thinks like, please just replace text with images so I don't have to read. But what you actually find is that they don't read the images either. Uh, so our early versions, we did have a lot more sort of symbols trying to represent everything. And uh, we sort of started clearing those out, putting more of a focus on really, really reworking our descriptions over and over and over again. Uh, I think there's probably 400 plus cards in the game and everything's been rewritten at least three or four times. Some of them far more than that, just trying to get to the point as quickly as possible, but you also start setting rules for how you're writing those descriptions. So it would be, you know, this action. So you'd sort of start it with like, where is it coming from? What does it do? Who does it go to? And you start getting at a rhythm for how you even write your descriptions so that uh, people can more quickly pick up sort of individual words across there that are that are important to you because they know that the order, as long as they pick up the order, they don't even have to necessarily read every word that's in it. Uh, but those went through a lot of revisions, just trying to get the descriptions right. That was, that was a big job. Uh, it continues to be something that we still look at regularly uh, because you're limited uh, by how much space you have too. That was something where we're also trying to find out how can we how can we limit the amount of text we need to use in there. What is the fastest way to get this point across? Um, and we can always do better at it. So we're always kind of revisiting that. Aside from that, we we color coded the cards. Well, we color coded the classes. Uh, that was an important decision that we made early on. We could have used icons for things, but we tried to just match up so that you always know blue means your drummer. So Blue cards go to your drummer because it blue matches the health bar. Uh, most of the characters are also very heavily colored in whatever their class is anyway. So it's usually red character, red health bar, uh, red cards, red characters on the cards, trying to really emphasize that these things all go together. When your cards are dealt out into your hand, they're ordered based on the same stances as your characters. So you've got drummer, bass, guitar, singer. Your cards in your hand are drummer, bass, guitar, singer. Again, trying to group things together so that you can, without really knowing that it's happening, you sort of start piecing together that they all line up together. Uh, we did have, we did try things like mixing icons into the description. So instead of saying heal, having health symbols, um, it helped at that point to see that, okay, yes, I know that this card must add health, but what we actually found was that people were just seeing the health symbol and not reading the words. Um, so mixing those things in, it didn't work the way we thought it would at that point. Uh, it actually ended up making it less clear. But being that it's it's a card game, this was easily one of the most important things we had to had to tackle. So it's been through quite a few revisions to get those those cards the way we wanted. Um, even to begin, it wasn't uh, when we got started. Uh, it was more 
it's actually kind of similar to to an RPG where each character came in with their three abilities. And instead of building out this entire deck, you kept swapping out the abilities on those characters. That was the very earliest version. Uh, and again, when everything is based on that card play, uh, we had to make some some pretty big changes at at one point because we found that it just wasn't working out the the way we were hoping it would. And all of those things sort of led to getting the cards to where they are now. Um, and then obviously it's a lot of playing other games and finding what works there versus what doesn't. So how do you make sure people know that this time this card has something special about it? Okay, well, giant highlights around things. Uh, how do you get, how do you make sure that you can, without needing to remember every icon, how can we make sure that players actually know what's in their hand? And that's, you know, you put a surprising amount of effort into the spacing of the cards and how many cards can you even have at once and how much space do the card needs to need to take up. Uh, one thing we see in the feedback sometimes is that people like uh, the cards take up almost the bottom half of the screen. And a lot of people are like, please just take that battle and blow it up, make it the whole thing. Yes, but now you can't read your cards. So I appreciate that you want to see more of the, the battle and the art. I do too. Um, but we sometimes you have to make those functionality choices over the biggest flashiest thing. Mm. Uh, screenshots are great, but how, it, how you actually read things when they're in action is a completely different situation. I want to talk about progression now in Power sure. Code. So Power Core does have uh, a little map that you go through in a similar vein to Slay the Spire, of course, which they've been on yep. the show too, and um, which is another reason why I have you on, because I <laughs> love this genre. It's fantastic. Talk us through the design of the progression system and how cards are earned. You get coins as well. You can buy more yep. cards from sellers as you make your way towards the big final boss, which you probably lose that in true FTL fashion. <laughs> Hopefully you lose to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, but uh, you learn so much in that battle. However, to tell us, talk us through the design of progression to the player, the little sense of reward to the player as they go through their journeys. Sure. So uh, when it came to the map and the actual progress through, through an individual run, uh, we actually tried a lot of different variations of the map, trying to find something you know, that works in the context of what our game is, um, trying to find something that was maybe more unique for us as well. And the interesting thing is that when we strayed from this this style of map that it's obviously it's similar to Slay the Spire map, but it's also similar to a lot of other roguelikes. Uh, and the interesting thing is every version that we tried that was different had a pretty significant downside to it where it started to take away the players it started to take away the weight behind the players choices so we tried things like well what if at the end of a battle we just pop up three options and you're picking from that or something like that but the second you couldn't see the entire path and choose, plot out where you wanted to go the individual choices stopped mattering um, it really is it's never about the next step it's always about the next five steps or about giving yourself a goal for what you want to try and get to. 
And anything we tried that removed that additional uh, information to consider, it actually, it, it really weakened the, the map. So an important part of this is, first of all, we, we had to take the, the multiple stages of the game and kind of consider where do we want the player to be at this time. So in my opinion, map one, you're just starting out, no matter how good you are at the game, you don't have cards yet. So map one is about you finding out which of your characters is gonna be powerful this time. You start collecting cards, you start seeing what the draws are gonna be. And no matter what you plan, you'll have your favorite character, but they won't always be the one who's getting the good cards. So map one is about finding out who on your team is going to be powerful. Map two is about really, now you know what you need to do. It's about building out your deck as much as you can and uh, sort of emphasizing what the strength of your team is going to be. At the end of map two, we give you a really tough fight to prove that you're powerful enough to move on. Map three is about refining the deck that you've got to make it exactly what you need it to be to be able to take on the final boss. So it's kind of these stages of what should you be doing at these time and what are you as the player learning at this time? So really it's it's kind of that find out who's strong, build out your team, perfect what you have, deal with the final boss. That's a big part of our sort of flow when it comes to those rewards. Uh, and we do, obviously there's, you know, the, the reward pools across each one get better and better as you go. But you could draw some really, really strong cards and really great gear at the beginning. But ideally, you're building that up as you go. Uh, the other side of it is that there are the cards, but there's also the gear items that we've got. And these sort of relics or, or gear, uh, each character has four slots, and that's it. So across the first couple stages, similar to the cards, you're just finding out what gear is going to drop, who needs to carry it so that they get the benefits of it. And then towards the end, it starts to be, how do I refine this and start replacing items with better or more powerful things? Or how do I replace it with gear that matches the cards I've picked up now? Sometimes you'll get a, a gear item at the beginning where you know that nine times out of 10, this is a good item, even though you don't have any cards that work with it now. And it becomes about trying to chase that to, to figure out how to make the, the gear you've got really uh, work for you. But that's that's the biggest part about our, our maps or the, the progression is just what stage the player should feel like they're at at this point and what their, what their current goal probably is. Uh, that's kind of the way we look at it. So last question, and this one is directed at you, Jamie, it really is. Okay. okay. The visual styling of Power Chord yes. harks back to an earlier time, in my opinion. You may disagree, yeah. but it feels uh -huh. like 2006 all over again, which is awesome. <laughs> that's uh, when, that's that when, it's, it's maybe 2005, 2006, it just yeah. feels like it. Um, why? It looks like Mad World. So, <laughs> so Mad World was a game that I showed people when we started talking about this. Uh, I've got a copy of Mad World, even though I never owned a Wii. Uh, 
I've never played it. I've just watched videos of it, uh, but it looked really fun. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but yeah, so when it came to the art style for the game, um, there's a couple factors there. One is that we knew that we were going to have a relatively small team. And we were also, uh, our timeline, we didn't know exactly what it was going to be yet, but we knew that we wanted to find a way to do a lot with less. And so part of the art style, trying to get that sort of messy, textured, the line work, all of that sort of detail in there. Uh, a lot of the influence for it is going to be things like comic books or photocopied posters from bands that would be like stapled to telephone poles. Those are the big influences there. But the end result was to come up with an art style that we could do a lot with less if we needed to. And it's also, in some ways, it can be kind of forgiving because if there's messy things in there, sometimes they just work out for the better. Not saying that there is, but um, it was kind of allowing imperfection to be one of the things that drives the art style. Things don't need to be exact. They don't need to be perfect. That square doesn't need to be square. It can be a bit skewed and we're good. Uh, things don't need to be aligned perfectly. Trying to get a lot of texture in there, trying to make it feel like in some ways it's been smashed together out of six different things and just to try and make it all fit together. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very sort of comic book textured, photocopied, uh, graphic over the top style that we're trying to go for with things. Uh, trying to give it some, in some cases, more of a like a, a tactile feel to it, like the menus are all taped and stitched together, that sort of thing. Um, just in in contrast to uh, things going with very simplified, minimalistic approach, I just wanted to go big and loud. And when people can't tell what's happening, we'll take a step back and remove some things. But for now, we're going to go as far as we possibly can until somebody has a problem with it, and then we'll we'll worry about uh, softening the edges, um, but really just trying to push that. So, Power Chord is developed by Big Blue Bubble Games and is available on what platforms? So, it's going to be available on Steam starting January 26th. All right, so it will be out by the time this show is released. So do yes. check it out. And <laughs> we've been reliably informed it does work on the Steam Deck as well. It's yes. One of, the, <laughs> one of the now many, used to be lucky few, but now many who own one of yeah. those, then knock yourself out. <laughs> Jamie, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Great. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you very much. And you're more than welcome to come back to chat about whatever <laughs> you're currently cooking under that that bonnet of yours uh, but, in, <laughs> but until then thank you well thanks again it's great to be here you have been listening to the sausage factory podcast part of the cane and rinse collective support us for just two us dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early extended and exclusive podcasts find us on twitter facebook instagram twitch youtube and at our website cane and rinse dot com.